Hi, I'm Asha Tomlinson. And I'm David Common. And we're hosts of CBC Marketplace. We're award-winning investigative journalists that want to help you avoid clever scams, unsafe products, and sketchy services. Our TV show has been Canada's top investigative consumer watchdog for more than 50 years. But this is our first podcast. CBC Marketplace podcast is available now on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC podcast. Hello, I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight. Vote of no confidence. A former aide to Imran Khan calls the 10-year sentence handed down for Pakistan's opposition leader a travesty and sees little hope that next week's elections there will be democratic. Life-saving gifts from tragic losses. The high number of drug overdose deaths in B.C. has led to a record number of organ donations. We'll talk to the mother of one of those donors. Made delayed. Medical assistance in dying on the basis of mental illness will not go ahead as scheduled. And Senator Pamela Wallen explains why she is speaking out against the decision to pause the rollout. Showstopper. Cheetah Rivera was the consummate Broadway triple threat. We'll hear from a longtime friend who says she was the perfect combination of sweet and spice on stage and off. Pulling a robot out of a hat, well, it only seems like magic. Actually, a combination of science and hand-eye coordination was what enabled an astronaut in space to control robots here on Earth. And bear without me. When thieves make off with a 500-pound taxidermied polar bear, the staff at an Alberta healing center are left to wonder why. And also, how... As it happens, the Tuesday edition, Radio that figures the bear could not have just walked out. It was absolutely stuffed. It's questionable whether Imran Khan will ever return to office. In fact, at this point, it's questionable whether the former Pakistani prime minister will leave prison anytime soon. Today, Mr. Khan was given a 10-year prison sentence. According to officials, he shared state secrets after taking diplomatic correspondence on stage with him at a political rally in 2022. The sentencing comes months after Mr. Khan was jailed last August on corruption charges and about a week before Pakistan's general election. He has denied all charges and says the cases are politically motivated. And after violent riots followed his initial arrest in 2022, some observers are worried about what is yet to come. Rauf Hassan is a former special aide to the former prime minister and a spokesperson for his Tariq Insaf party. We reached him in Islamabad. Rauf Hassan, symbolic and predictable are two of the words I've seen critics of this ruling use to describe it. How do you describe this ruling? Well, it's a travesty, travesty of justice, travesty of the Constitution, travesty of the rule of law, travesty of just about everything that should be upheld in a democratic setup. What is the next step for you and, and those who, who are supporting Mr. Khan in this fight? Well, it is, it's, a, it's a legal battle, basically. You know, we have uh, the higher courts to approach and uh, we are going to move a petition tomorrow uh, in the Islamabad High Court. Unfortunately, the judgment of uh, some judges have, uh, have been contrary to, to, to constitutional provisions and rule of law in the past, you know, but I hope uh, that, uh, that uh, they shall ponder hard before they come up with their judgment this time. It's a legal battle and we intend to pursue it to the end. Imran Khan wrote on social media after the ruling came down, urging the public to, quote, take revenge for every injustice with your vote on February 8th while remaining peaceful, end quote. I recognize what he's saying there when he says while remaining peaceful. But at the same time, do you feel that that kind of rhetoric, that kind of language is helpful in these volatile times? Oh, well, 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 we are a non-violent political party, you know, we have political objectives, you know, that we want to achieve uh, by by staying within the domains of constitution and rule of law. And we have never mm-hmm. used violence as uh, as a tool. The 9th of May thing, you know, which uh, we are accused of uh, 
of, of orchestrating, you know, we have always demanded, you know, that an independent judicial commission should be set up to investigate that thoroughly. And then the guilty should be punished, you know, according to the law of the land. This is the most basic demand that anybody could make, you know, nowhere in the world, nowhere in the civilized and democratic world, you know, can you punish somebody, you know, without first investigating the causes of that punishment, you know. So this is what we have been consistently demanding that uh, an independent judicial commission should be set up, which unfortunately has not been done so far. And some people have uh, just uh, accused the party of uh, of having done a few things on 9th of May, uh, when Khan himself was uh, in prison in the custody of the security agencies of the country. Consequently, you know, he could not have uh, given a call. He was he was behind bars. But we have not. The, our leader has never asked our people to step out and be violent, you know. And even now, uh, he has given a call to remain peaceful. But uh, our revenge, our revenge, uh, it will come, you know, when our people vote on the 8th of February, if the elections to, uh, are still held in the country, yeah. because, you know, I have, I have lurking doubts, you know. Do you, that, I wanted uh, to ask you, do, do you think those elections will be free and fair, given what you've seen already and your concerns about what happened in court? The elections are definitely not going to be free. They're not going to be fair. And they obviously have not been inclusive. You know, for the last nine, eight, nine months, you know, since 9th of May, basically, you know, the, the entire state apparatus, uh, including all its institutions, you know, have been busy in just trying to eliminate one person from the political arena. That's Imran Khan. They have not succeeded in doing it. They have been trying to decimate the political party, PTI. They have not succeeded in doing it. That has added to their frustration and it shall continue adding to their frustration, you know. So I feel that the elections are kind of in a balance, you know. They could be held. But uh, we also fear that they may be postponed. If they're postponed, how do you think people will react? People are going to be very, very, very disturbed about it. You know, I think there are certain things, you know, where even the political parties cannot control its followers. Uh, we have we have tried very hard, you know, by giving out calls. Like, for example, if you trace the history of my messages to the people, you know, as as the information secretary of the party, you know, it is to stay quiet. It is to stay peaceful. It is not to take law in their own hands. This has been a consistent message, you know, which has been going out from Imran Khan and all his followers, all his leaders. Uh, but uh, there comes a time when uh, the level of frustration rises to a point where it cannot be controlled by the leaders. Uh, you know, it, it is a prospect, you know, that keeps disturbing me. You know, it's a possibility that cannot be ruled out. You know, on one hand, you say you're concerned, but on the other hand, you're saying you might not be able to control your supporters or, or others who are upset about the way things are going. There's a limit to what leaders can control, you know. Uh, well, they I could say, they could say this is an injustice. But they could say, we'll, you know, we'll let the courts decide. There's other language that could be used. See, it's a captive society at this moment in time. For example, you know, we are not uh, allowed to hold our rallies. You know, when we are not hold to uh, allowed to hold any political activity in the country at all. Uh, while all other political parties are free to do whatever they want to, our our party has been put under this uh, this kind of embargo, uh, mm-hmm. one person embargo uh, that we cannot hold anything. So there's no venting out of feelings. You know, so these you know all avenues of uh, catharsis have been blocked. And when that is that happens in a society, you know, then emotions are likely to well up and overflow. That is what I, I fear at this moment in time, you know. But we hope that it does not happen. Like our leader has given out a call, you know, for people to stay peaceful. All his followers and his uh, party people are also giving out calls, you know, for them to stay peaceful. But nothing can be guaranteed. That is what I meant, you know. Yeah. You know, if it's, they, all we need is a spark. And there are ample sparks, you know, flying around at this moment in time, you know. So any one spark can actually can ignite a fire. That would be very unfortunate. What is the way back from this instability and this situation in your view? A free and fair elections in the country and letting letting a government with genuine mandate of people uh, come to power and give out its charter mm-hmm. and have uh, giving it the power, democratic mm-hmm. power to implement it. That is the only way forward. If the elections are not held and they're delayed indefinitely, I deeply suspect you know, that they, there could be uh, uh, massive unrest in the country. Rauf Hassan, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Rauf Hassan was a special aide to Imran Khan when he was the Prime Minister of Pakistan. He's also a spokesperson for Mr. Khan's Tariq Insaf party. We reached him in Islamabad.
Officials reviewing medical assistance in dying on the basis of mental illness have made their assessment clear. We are not ready. Yesterday, plans for a March 17th launch to the program were canceled. A parliamentary committee issued a report recommending a delay, and Federal Health Minister Mark Holland announced that the feds were accepting that recommendation. That is the second time a start date has come and gone without implementation. Not everyone on that committee agreed, though. Senator Pamela Wallen was one of three committee members who broke with the majority. We reached her in Toronto. But first, here's some of what the health minister told reporters today. I think this is a hard conversation. You know, when you look at the people who are suffering uh, and who are asking for this relief, we take that deeply seriously. I I think the question, though, is to really ascertain and understand, is the system ready and to get it right? It became clear talking to provinces, territories, CAMH, the Canadian Mental Health Association and others, that we aren't there yet. And so we're taking the appropriate measure of taking another pause. Senator Wallen, Mark Holland says Canada is not ready for this in terms of specifically mental illness and MAID. Why do you believe that we are ready? Well, I think he's uh, playing with the words just a bit. He's saying that the system isn't ready. We know the medical health system is not in great shape. That was not the mandate of the committee. That's not what we were asked to look at. We were asked to look at whether the MAID system the ability to provide medical assistance in dying was ready to deal with people for whom mental illness is a sole underlying Mm -hmm. cause. And we heard from people who were involved in this system directly who said we are ready. The activities to allow the safe and adequate assessment and provision of MAID have been underway for three years and they are now complete. So, you know, it's apples and oranges. In the in the dissenting opinion and that the, you and the other senators wrote, you, you said that the majority report made errors in, in weighing evidence. What errors did they make? We, they had a, an imbalance. They didn't weight the evidence mm-hmm. properly uh, to come to their conclusion. The, the weight of the witness testimony was clear. Um, Now, people may have concerns about this issue and whether or not they think it's the right way to go. We were not relitigating the question of MAID. We were asked to find out whether the MAID system could accommodate people with mental illnesses. And we were told repeatedly from people in the process that, yes, we are ready to do so. So if the government wants to delay it, for other reasons, they should say it's for other reasons. It's what what reason politics. would they have? What reason would they have? What benefit is there? To well, them? I don't know. Perhaps they don't want to run a campaign on this issue. I, you know, you'd have to ask them that question. But they've already had the year delay. And so in the final hours, we were reconvened again to uh, the committee, the joint committee, to ask those made providers whether they were ready and the preponderance of evidence that we heard from the people that actually provided said yes. Well, health ministers from seven provinces and territories, as you likely know, signed a letter to Mr. Holland today saying, quote, the current March 17, 2024 deadline does not provide sufficient time to fully and appropriately prepare all provinces and territories across Canada, end quote. If so many provincial officials are are saying this right now, does that concern you? at all? Well, I, we, we didn't ask the health ministers to testify. That wasn't the issue. I know it seems a bit like dancing on the head of a pen, but our they mandate... Say they, need more. They, they say they need more time, though. But and if they the can't... If they can't actually provide the service that actually are involved in the made provision said they're ready. Do you ever have enough doctors in the system or psychiatrists in the system? No, clearly not to do any other medical procedure in this country either. Were they ready to do it? Yes, they had people that were ready to do it, that were trained, who had gone through the process, who understood the protocols, but that was not the view um, of the majority, mostly Liberal MPs on the committee, and I think one New Democrat. There was a dissenting report from the Conservatives. There was our report that mm-hmm. said, you're not looking at the right things. The Bloc Québécois had another one. There are constitutional concerns. Obviously, with this much concern about the report, we have to look and see whether the government really read it and really interpreted it properly. 
the head of psychiatry at Sunnybrook Hospital in Toronto was was cited in the majority report, also spoke to the Toronto Star uh, in an earlier piece that, that looked at the concerns that some, including him, have about the trajectory, the pace at which this is happening in, in Canada. He's concerned about the speed, uh, as are others, and said to the Star, quote, we don't know what the full impact is going to be, end quote. To those, like Dr. Sonugand, who are concerned about how fast this is unfolding, Clearly, the the committee listened to him as well. The first decision on this issue, the Carter decision, Mm -hmm. came in 2016. This has been in process for a long time. People are taking this extremely seriously. We can't say that this is proceeding too rapidly because it doesn't even exist yet. It took a pause last year, and now it's taking another pause. You and the other senators wrote in the dissenting opinion, quote, prejudice and stigma against people with mental disorders has been reinforced by this committee's majority report, end quote. Just expand on what you mean there. Well, that, this is what we're saying, that that we have a made system in Canada. If you have any number of illnesses, you can apply for MAID. And and what the what we have heard in testimony this time around and and to the committee earlier is people who are suffering from mental illness saying we want the same access. There are issues in the system that we are trying to wrestle with so that Canadians have equal access to this kind of end of life decision. And I think it's really important that we do it right. I think we heard the evidence saying that the country is ready to do that. And I'm sorry that there will be yet another delay, however long, for people who, who are suffering. Senator Wallen, thank you. You're so welcome. Senator Pamela Wallen is a member of the Special Joint Parliamentary Committee on Medical Assistance in Dying. We reached her in Toronto. Cheetah Rivera as Velma Kelly in the original cast of the musical Chicago, one of countless shows in which she left audiences and critics flabbergasted. In one typical superlative, one reviewer described her as only the greatest musical theater dancer ever. Cheetah Rivera spent almost seven decades dazzling audiences. She originated key roles in all kinds of Broadway hits, including Anita in the original production of West Side Story in 1957, Rosie in Bye Bye Birdie in 1960, and The Spider Woman herself in Kiss of the Spider Woman in 1993. Ms. Rivera was born in Washington, D.C. to Puerto Rican parents on January 23, 1933. Today, one week after her 91st birthday, she died in New York. Ryan G. Hines is a longtime friend of Cheetah Rivera. He's also an actor and director. We reached him in Toronto. Ryan, you have an origin story of your relationship with Cheetah Rivera that I think any any musical fan, any Broadway fan would envy, to say the least. How did you meet Cheetah Rivera? Summer of 1992. I'm 12 years old, mm-hmm. uh, a queer, black, suburban kid, uh, obsessed with theater and doing everything I can to be in and around theaters. And Kiss of the Spider Woman happened to be playing in Toronto at the St. Lawrence Centre. And I was, uh, I was uh, doing a volunteer program at the theatre and was uh, charmed by this woman who, uh, who I ran into. And we struck up a friendly relationship. And lo and behold, it was the legendary Cheetah Rivera. <laughs> so you're 12, you're in the lobby. Mm-hmm. What did she say to you? Because you were, you were wearing a Cats t-shirt at the time. Yeah. She had something to say about that. The first words (laughs) Cheetah ever said to me were, you're wearing the wrong shirt. (laughs) 
<laughs> and you know, at 12 years old, what business did I have at being at a show like Kiss of the Spider Woman in the in, in the first place? But uh, there was something there was something about her that I was instantly attracted to, and there was something about me that she was instantly curious about. And so by the end of the summer, we had gotten to be friendly, and she invited me to come to New York City when the show went to New York the following year. Uh, my mom and I took her up on that invitation, and so there I am at 13, backstage <laughs> at a Broadway show, learning what everybody does and seeing the different departments and and having an incredible, incredible experience. What, what a summer. What an experience. You don't say no to, to Cheetah Rivera when she invites you to Broadway, certainly. She'd go on to win a Tony Award for that role. Uh, she originated so many roles. Anita in West Side Story, certainly Bye Bye Birdie, Chicago. The list is long uh, and legendary, certainly. But for you, as you as you became friends, but also watched her as a performer through the decades, what did she teach you about this world and this craft? Uh, she taught me the importance of being a vessel for the writing of the of, of the songwriters. She taught me about um, embodying the vision of the director. And she taught me about the importance of teamwork and how really trying to be a part of an ensemble lifts uh, a piece to greater heights than it would be otherwise. Sage advice. I learned two new things reading about her just before our conversation. She had thought about becoming a nun. And she loved sumo wrestling. Did she talk to you about both of those things? <laughs> she did. Cheetah, in her real life, was very, very, very Catholic. Uh, when when her show, The Dancer's Life, uh, opened on Broadway, uh, I went to visit her, and she gifted me a, a St. G- Genesius medal, a Catholic medal, St. Genesius being the patron saint of, of actors and, mm-hmm. and dancers and performers and clowns, etc. But uh, when she gave it to me, it wasn't just a, here, have this. She she said a prayer. She kissed it. It was a very a very special thing for her. So I know I know her her Catholic religion was very 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 important to her. Yeah, her mom. I don't mm-hmm. I don't think she would have been a great nun. I'm really happy. She yeah, I go out on a limb. I didn't know her, but just <laughs> I'm thinking she had she needed to 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 show her energy in other ways, display her mm-hmm. energy and craft in in other ways. I heard her mom put her into to dance because she'd broken a table or something. It was so rambunctious. She thought that yeah. theater would teach her or ballet would teach her some discipline and let her get her energy out. She had a lot of mm-hmm. energy. <laughs> mm-hmm. But, you know, discipline is really about what Cheetah, uh, that's what her life was about. She wasn't a big scandal monger. She wasn't running around uh, living a big party life. She was really focused on her work and focused on keeping herself in shape and healthy enough to, to mm-hmm. do the work. Yeah. And that's something else that I, uh, I learned from her is, is if you're going to do the work, really do it to the best of your abilities. And that means sometimes you have to prioritize that before other mm-hmm. things in life. When was the last time you spoke with her? Uh, we chatted very, very briefly just recently, mm-hmm. but the last time we spoke at length was when we did a Zoom interview for the Stratford Festival around the opening of my show, Hashtag Candor and Ebb. Mm-hmm. Um, I did a solo show about the songwriters Candor and Ebb, who wrote yeah. Chicago and Cabaret and Kiss of the Spider Woman, so obviously there were some anecdotes about her yeah. uh, in that show. And she was really generous with her time, and she knew I was nervous about to make my Stratford debut. And it was just the, the most lovely thing in the world for her to have this at-length conversation with me about her work, about my work, about our experiences together. And it really, I think, showed a, sh- a side of her that she didn't always show to other people. Uh, in the interview, she talked about how um, uh, I had recently lost my mother, oh, and uh, she was volunteering to be my other mother on my other oh. shoulder. And that's a, a moment I really, really cherish, and that's that's very cheetah. That's really beautiful. You have lots of beautiful mm-hmm. memories at different points in your life to cherish. Thank you so much for sharing them with us. Thank you so much. Take care. We reached actor and director Ryan G. Hines in Toronto.
Fifty years ago on this program, Alan Maitland became the host with the moist pants, but it was a beaver's fault. The year was 1974, as it happens, was in the midst of a campaign to have the beaver named a national symbol of Canada, and in December, David Carrick of the Toronto Zoo brought one by the studio to meet the program's hosts, Barbara Frum and Al Maitland, and nothing could dampen their spirits, even the dampness. He loves it already. There now. There now. Oh, that's great. Oh, how nice for you, Al. That's Such good. a lovely boy. And he's peeing on me. We shoot. Oh, that's mine. No! That's no! Oh. <laughs> it doesn't stop. Anyway. Maybe someone better rescue him. Listen. Merry <clears throat> Christmas, Al. It's, it's a flood. <laughs> Listen. It's never happened before on the radio, I'm sure. <laughs> And sometime after that, someone donated this remote control robot beaver that we have here in the studio. We don't know how to turn it on, so it's just been sitting there not doing a damn thing. That reminds me, though, for the first time ever, someone has managed to... What? That is so weird. I just mentioned it, and now the robot beaver is moving. I've never seen it take a step before. Marcus Vaunt, is that you? It's what I was about to say is this. For the first time ever, someone has controlled a quadruped robot from outer space, and that someone was Swedish astronaut Marcus Vaunt, who's aboard the International Space Station, which is orbiting around 400 kilometers above the Earth. Mr. Vaunt was able to manipulate the robots, including a small robot dog named Bert, to find objects in a lab, and to get two robots to work together to put a peg in a hole, again, from space. That is an amazing feat on its own, but it also means that on future missions to the moon or other planets, robots could be controlled remotely from a great distance, which is good because those bots were made for walking. Now here is height. Oh, the robot beavers coming over here. Hi, little. It's getting on my lap. I can't even. Very. Oh. Oh, great. Uh. Neil, could you maybe get me a towel? Of course. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of the Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at the Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. There is some good news out of British Columbia. The province has set a record for organ donations and transplants, which means that last year more than 500 people received help to extend their lives. But there is more to that news. A substantial number of those who donated those organs died from drug overdoses. Of 160 deceased donors, 60 had overdosed. In an interview with the Globe and Mail, the head of BC Transplant, the agency that oversees donations, acknowledged that the ongoing drug crisis played a role. Debbie Pico's son, Tommy, fatally overdosed in 2020. He donated his organs. We reached her in Pitt Meadows, BC. Debbie, when you hear that new statistic that more than a third of of deceased organ donors in BC last year died, as your son Tommy did, of drug overdoses, how does that sit with you? It doesn't sit well because we know that those deaths could be prevented. Unfortunately, that would mean less donors. And, And BC Transplant, the head of BC Transplant, told the Globe and Mail that they would be they would be okay with that. They would rather see this crisis dealt with, even if it meant fewer donors. But if we yes. talk about your your son, Tommy, you know, did you know that he had signed up to be an organ donor? Not before his death, no. Mm-hmm. We learned of it when the Transplant Society came and talked to us in the hospital and asked us if we would like to have his organs donated. Mm-hmm. But it turned out that once they went into the system that he already was signed up as a donor. In such a difficult moment, a surprise like that, how did you how did you process that? Well, we were very glad that yeah. he could donate his organs. And I think for me that made 
quite a difference, knowing that there was going to be something to carry on from Tommy. And as you hear these statistics today, and as you said, it's it's a problem we know about, why do you think it's still at the state that it is in this country? I think there's lots of things that contribute to it. It seems like a lot more people are undergoing trauma and stress than they used to. And I think the government isn't taking the proper steps to try and resolve people getting treated before they end up with an overdose. How much were you able to learn about Tommy's organs and who they helped? Oh, we, um, when Tommy died, what I did was I sent cards through the Transplant Society to each organ recipient. The one that called us back was his heart recipient. Her name's Lindsay. And we've eventually met her. She came to, her and her husband came to the house. They've been over several times. And it's been so nice to know her and what her attitude is towards the heart donation. Her and Tommy seem to be very much alike. And it's quite eerie to see them sometimes or to see her and think about Tommy and what Tommy was like. But it's just wonderful to be able to hear his heart, you know, two years after he died. He's carrying on. It's interesting you said the word them, accidentally, obviously, but do you feel like you're seeing him and feeling him? Oh, all the time. Yeah, yeah. She is very much like him. I mean, Tommy had tattoos, and this woman has tattoos, and they were both outgoing and... um, It's really a pleasure to have a connection with her now. These new statistics from Mm -hmm. BC allows us to talk to you and and learn more about Tommy and his experience. And as officials who might be listening continue to look at these issues, what do you want them to know about how much help Tommy received after he suffered the injury that eventually led to his drug use? I think there was a few things that certainly played into... Tommy's non-recovery. He did go to treatment, and I don't think there was enough follow-up after treatment. He did well at one of the treatment programs, but all of a sudden he was dropped, and there was no resources after that. And for someone who seems like they're a high-achieving individual and can manage things, I think he needed more support than he thought he did. When Tommy was struggling with drugs, I thought I knew a lot about them, but I've certainly found out that I don't. And just what makes people turn to drugs? It's it's very hard to listen to stories sometimes as to what makes people turn to drugs. And I think if they could somehow get the support they needed before things went too bad, it would save a lot of people. And what you were saying about what happens after people leave treatment, I've heard that before as well, that you know, yes. when you come back into the same scenario you were in before you went to treatment. It's it's often yeah. very easy for anyone to slip into, into That's those right. habits. You come back to the same friends, the same situations. It's hard to get away from sometimes. And for a lot of people, you know, coming back from treatment is one of the points where people are most likely to have an overdose. When you think back at the donation process, the surprise of learning, but what you've learned since, how does that help you deal or reflect on Tommy's death at such a young age now? I think one of the ways that I deal with this is by working with outreach now. I have met so many of Tommy's friends, people that I recognize now who have told me, you know, how he's helped them, how nice he was to them. And those kind of things make a difference for me, sort of hearing about the life he had that was separate from our life. But he still had the values and the loyalty that he had when he was with us. That makes a difference for me. And knowing his heart recipient is what makes a difference. And it gives me that connection with Tommy still. Ultimately, what do you want listeners to take away from Tommy's story, but also the numbers we're talking about here, that that, that donations have gone up because people are struggling so much there. Yeah. 
I think, to take away is to pressure the government to do more than they're doing right now, setting aside money and promising treatment beds for years to come is not helping anybody right now on the street. We need to have more action and we need to have the policymakers listen to the people that are affected by drugs right now. Debbie, thank you very much for your time and I'm sorry for your loss. Uh, oh, thank you very much. Bye-bye. Take care. Thank you. Debbie Pico is the mother of organ donor Tommy Pico. She is in Pitt Meadows, B.C. was a constant, a staple. He'd been at the Lion's Heart Wholeness Centre for years, long before any of the staff, and he had a view of everything from his special perch on the second floor. But this month, Harry was abducted from the centre in Sturgeon County, Alberta, north of Edmonton. No one knows who took him, or how they took him, because it can't be easy to sneak off with a giant taxidermy polar bear. Wanda Rowe is the executive director of the Lion's Heart Wholeness Centre. We reached her there. Wanda Harry is is certainly hard to miss, but when did you first realize he wasn't there? So it actually took us, um, it was almost a week to realize um, where he is in our center. Mm -hmm. We walk by every day, but he's up on the second level. So it's it's something you have to look up to kind of notice. Um, And I think it took us a little bit of time. We had just come off. It was like we had three days of really, really cold weather here. And we were dealing with um, frozen pipes and other issues on the property. And I think we were all a little bit distracted. And so it took us about a week. uh, And one of my staff noticed and called me. And as I was happy to be walking in and looked up, and it was just kind of a a moment of shock to realize that he wasn't he wasn't there. Yeah, I I, I think I, I get what you're saying. You know, when you see something or when something's in your periphery day in and day out for a long time, uh, you sort of stop noticing it. But then when you did, in that moment of shock, as you said, uh, mm-hmm. what did you do after that set in? Um, <clears throat> well, it, it definitely took some time to kind of absorb it. Uh, the first thing we did is we did report it to the police um, because that was kind of the most important thing to get the message out. Um, we also then kind of talked with our team and our staff to try to figure out because it, it was a big thing to get this to get this piece of um, property off our site. Mm-hmm. So we talked to our staff to kind of find out if anyone had seen anything. And, and once we kind of pieced together the little bits we could, uh, we had kind of tracked it back to that January 13th day as that was the only day that we had had to pull our security. Um, it's a big property. It's about 300 acres here. So where the building here is kind of the closest point to the exit and the rest of our kind of organization was further down the property. And so we had pulled our security down there just because it was so cold. It wasn't even safe for them to be driving around mm-hmm. and, and outside. Um, so that's kind of where we, we tracked it back to that being the day. Um, and that was kind of the next thing we did. And then, and then from there, it was just kind of working with the police to let them know and get pictures put together for them. What do you think happened? Honestly, we we don't know. Um, it's it's a really bizarre thing. Uh, there's lots of other things in the building that could have been taken. Um, it's it's a really large property. There's lots of other pieces. This was the most difficult thing to probably get out. Um, yeah, it had high value for sure, but there there's definitely other things in the building that could have been taken. So um, so we're not sure. We're, we're pretty clueless. It's it's large. <laughs> it's very it's large. Huge. Yeah. And it's um and it was not easy to get out. Like, I think that's why the shock was kind of there because it just doesn't make sense. What would the logistics have been to remove it? Oh, it, I mean, there was it was it was kind of up on like I said on a second level balcony, and um, it had its own ledge that was built just for it to be there, and it was ch- um it was tied down with um not chains but uh, cables. So it was cabled down. So they would have had to actually first of all they would have had to actually cut the lock to our entrance. Then they would have had to cut the cables and we can kind of see where they pulled it back over the balcony and then they would have dragged it out. Um, I'm assuming the building is quite covered. So this could have all happened inside the building. There would have been no one in the building. We wouldn't have seen any of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'm assuming at that point, you know, there would have been a truck waiting outside, probably off the property that they got to come in once they got it to the door. And then at that point, 
you know, would have been loaded up and go. But, I mean, it's it's very heavy and very large. So it would have taken at least, you know, two or three or four guys. So the next question is why? Why do you think someone or a group of people would even want to do this? Uh, I honestly don't know. I, again, I, I, I feel like we are a little bit in the dark, but we are in the dark. Um, there's obviously the, the first thing that comes to mind, of course, is the, the valuableness in terms of money. Um, I think there's another piece, though, that's, that's a bigger piece. Um, and I, I'm always really careful when I, when I explain this, because what we do here as an organization mm-hmm. is we work with Indigenous um, healing and education. And so symbolically for Indigenous people, the bear represents healing. Um, and so we definitely feel a gap in it. And, and he's also been here, you know, previous to us being on this facility. He's been here for years. Um, he's probably the one, the one thing here, alive or not alive, that has definitely seen this place have many different purposes over the years. And, mm-hmm. and I'm sure he's seen lots of things that have happened here. This, is, this place has got a lot of history in terms of the property. So there's, there's that history, there's that emotional and spiritual significance mm-hmm. financially, I mean, can you can you put a dollar figure on on it? Not really. I mean, I think the police have valued it at about thirty five thousand dollars for both the bear and there was also a pair of raccoons that had gone missing this summer. Um, the other piece to that, though, is at this point it's not replaceable, right? No one's going to yeah. go out and get another polar bear and stuff it. So it's something that will never be replaced. Yeah, there's some some piece of that that even if there's a dollar amount on it is also yeah. it's not replaceable. So what would you say if? The, the person or the group who, who took Harry are listening. Yeah. What would you say to them about, or maybe it shows up for sale somewhere. What would you say to, to someone who I, realizes where Harry belongs? Yeah, I think, I think like just the piece of, um, you know, I've seen some of the memes and stuff that are going around. So there is some, there's some humor and some irony in this and I understand that, but just for them to also understand, like for us, you know, we are a place of healing and so for us we're not holding any judgment we just kind of want him to come back to where he has been and where his home is now um and so just that piece of you know do the right thing i think it's it's really about just doing the right thing and having some integrity and, and bring him back home you know if they want to put him back there without us knowing that's okay but um just really honoring and respecting that at some point that also was a life right that was a live animal live being and so just having that respect for for that spirit as well Wanda, thank you. Mm-hmm. No problem. Thank you, guys. Wanda Rowe runs the Lion's Heart Wholeness Centre in Sturgeon County, Alberta. You may have heard our interview yesterday about the thousands of patients in Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, who are losing their doctors. And as everyone not in Ontario knows, that is not just an Ontario issue. We've heard over and over how staffing shortages are affecting hospital emergency rooms and doctor's offices across the country. Shadi Rezazadeh has been able to find doctors to work at her Winnipeg clinics, although she says that has come with a big price tag, $700,000. That money will cover costs like recruiter fees and incentives to bring doctors from the UK to work at her two clinics, all of whom are expected to arrive by June. We reached Dr. Shadi Rezazadeh in Winnipeg. Dr. Razazada, all of that money is coming from you, out of your pocket. Why did you decide to take that step? Because there wasn't any other way. I put advertisement and after advertisement after advertisement in the Doctors Manitoba website, you know, calling the universities, sending emails to the ones that they are going to graduate, trying to communicate with other doctors. I was not getting anywhere. By just luck, I got into contact with one of the doctors who came to Canada through the same way. And actually, she was the one that introduced me to recruiter uh, company, recruitment company. And this is someone from the UK. Why why are doctors from the UK coming to Canada? Well, it wasn't that easy to find doctors that they wanted to move, to be honest with you. Last year, at this time, we only could find two doctors. Like, I started with recruitment company in February of last year. He could find me a doctor. It took a month and a half for him to find my first doctor because nobody wanted to come to Canada. Or 
if they wanted to come to Canada, nobody would want to come to Manitoba, unfortunately. Everybody wanted to go to Ontario or BC. So it took me about like six, seven months to get my two doctors. Until very recently that the system in UK has changed. So now you have... So you, now you have 10 doctors from the UK. Yes. yes. How did you entice them? Well, first doctor, I had to offer airfare ticket for him and his family member. They're a family of five. I provided them one month free rent and one month free car rental and uh, all the like money paid for their examination and everything. Mm-hmm. By the time that I was hiring my second doctor, I already interviewed a few that they decided not to come to Manitoba and they were asking for incentive. I'm like, okay, what incentive? I'm already giving this. No, we want more. Other places, they're offering like cash money. So, so how then much I cash? Talk, to be honest with you, I don't know about the others, but then with my recruiter, we decided that, okay, I'll offer whatever I offer to my first doctor. As That was as a just being nice and trying to help. That was I wasn't thinking about incentives or anything at that time, but I just thought that it's good to show your good faith, right? I want them to feel that they are welcome here. So that's what I started to kind of give a little bit of like, you know, airfare ticket mm-hmm. or like housing and stuff to tell them that I care about them. But then I realized that that's not enough for them. So they not need incentives like cash bonuses. So we ended up offering everybody, mm-hmm. including my first doctor who didn't ask for it, $17,500 per doctor. Mm-hmm. And I had to do this. Otherwise, they would go to Ontario or BC. How long is it going to take you to recover that $700,000 that you spent? Their contract is three years. As you know, these doctors are working fee-for-service, means based on the number of patients that they see, they get paid, and then the clinic gets a portion of it. So I don't know mm-hmm. how hard these doctors are going to work, how many patients they're going to see. For example, I already have doctors asking me to work only four days a week or working certain hours, seeing certain number of patients a day. So I really don't know. I'm hoping I can get some recovered. Mm -hmm. But more than the recovery and business perspective, which I know people are going to think, okay, if it wasn't any benefit into it, why did you do it? It's not about that. I was drowning in terms of I needed help from doctors to take the volume. We were like three full-time doctors in my clinic, and we were all seeing like 50, 60 a day, every day, every day, every day, day after day. Either I had to completely leave the medicine, sell my clinic, leave it to do something somewhere else, and basically fail my patients. Or I had to take it, like, because there was nobody that I could approach. I actually approached to the previous government in Manitoba. I didn't get anywhere. So I said, okay, nobody is listening. We are all drowning in terms of the being burned out with the volume of the patients. And there is no way I can find doctors here. I had to start somewhere. You are scheduled to meet with the provincial health minister tomorrow, Uzoma Aseguera. Yes. The minister said... You know, our CB, in our CBC News coverage that, that they think your idea is really interesting and they're excited to meet with you. What would success look like and feel like to you after that meeting? What's, what do you want to get across to the minister and get in return? I just want to get certain things that waste our time to be eliminated. And also li- they need to listen to us. It's so different when you're in the office and you make a, basically policies than when it comes to us that we are on the ground and we are trying to survive day by day because of the broken system. I am hoping that I can make things way easier for my colleagues that they are going to choose this route. I don't want anybody go through what I went through in the last year. Doctor, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Sorry, I became emotional. Oh, why is it so emotional? Because it was hard. It was very hard. This is not what you imagined when you became a doctor? No. No. 
Do you feel hopeful now? Very. But it's... I hope I can make a difference. I hope so. And I should thank my husband, my kids, my parents. They have been super supportive. I sacrificed them for my job. I know they understand and I know they are proud of me because they know what my goal is. I want to help my patients. I want to help the community. I want to help people. And I'm sure they understand. And if I can make a difference, I can make them very proud. Well, you've certainly changed the conversation in a lot of ways, whatever happens next with the steps you've decided to take. Yes. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Doctor. Thank you. That was Dr. Shadi Razazadeh in Winnipeg. After nearly two years of chaos, Canada's figure skating team has missed out on an Olympic medal by one point. Today, the International Skating Union published amended standings from the Beijing Olympics in 2022, because yesterday, Russian athlete Kamila Valieva, who was 15 at the time of those Olympics, was disqualified for doping. Her points were stripped from the Russian team, which had won gold, but they weren't awarded to any other team. So Canada was not bumped up to bronze. The final result, the U.S. was awarded gold, Japan silver, and Russia bronze. Megan Duhamel is a retired Olympic figure skater. Her former skating partner, Eric Radford, was on the team that was hoping to be awarded the bronze medal. We reached her in Oakville, Ontario. Megan, it doesn't look like Team Canada is going to get the bronze. How does that sit with you? You know, I'm, I'm extremely discouraged, but I'm not surprised at the decision. And that's unfortunate. Um, I kind of expected that this is the angle they would try to go down. Um, But unfortunately, in this uh, decision that the ISU made today, they've actually gone against their own rules. The ISU states that if a skater is disqualified, all the other skaters will be bumped up in the results. Mm -hmm. What they've chosen to do in this team event is disqualify Camilla Valieva, but they did not bump up the second-place skater to first, the third-place skater to second. If they had done that, Canadian skater Maddie Skizas would have gained two more points in the team event, and that would have put Canada in the bronze medal position ahead of Russia. Why do you think they didn't do that? I think that it's possible that they are trying, the ISU is trying to keep Russia in their good books um, because they are such a powerful sporting federation. And I'm not too sure if Canada and Japan and the U.S., the countries that were blocked out of getting medals at the Olympics in Beijing, if their voices have been heard. I'm not sure if anybody's taken the time at the ISU to listen to Skate Canada, to the Japanese Skating Federation, and hear um, the Federation advocate for their athletes. I think that this decision can be appealed. By Skate Canada. Skate Canada has the chance to appeal this, but Russia has also chosen to appeal. They still think that they deserve the gold. They are not happy to be put down to bronze, even if they didn't even deserve the bronze. So it's a very tricky situation. It's very unfortunate for all the clean athletes because clean athletes should win mm-hmm. always. Um, and by win, I don't mean gold medal. Like I mean like win in the grand scheme of sport. Yeah. Have you spoken to your to your former Paris partner, Eric Radford? He was on the team vying for bronze. Do you, do you know how he's doing with all of this? I haven't spoken to him about this situation, but mm-hmm. Eric is actually the athlete's representative for the ISU. Mm-hmm. So his job is to be the voice for athletes within the ISU. So potentially he can have some influence and some power in that position. The skaters have already lost their moment at the Olympics. They've already lost... You know, the emotions that can come with standing on the Olympic podium. They've already lost potential sponsorships, potential jobs that they could have got had they left the Olympics with their medal. Mm. Um, And now any appeal by Skate Canada or by the Russian um, Skating Federation is only going to keep 
pushing this case further and further from a final answer and from a conclusion. What does the sport lose? It's such a beloved sport. It loses credibility. It loses so much credibility when the powers that be at the ISU decide to play with their own rules. And they absolutely played with their own rules because Camilla Valieva competed at the European Championships in between her positive doping case and the Olympics. They've removed her from winning the Europeans and they've adjusted the results accordingly, but they've chosen not to do that for the Olympics. It's just extremely confusing. (laughs) And in a sport that a lot of um, sporting fans already see as a political judged sport, now we're throwing in this into the mix. It's, It's really a sad day for our sport. I feel like figure skating has lost credibility in a huge way. In terms of, of Ms. Valieva herself, she was 15 years old uh, at the time. Do you put the blame on the athlete or the team, the coaches, or both in a situation like this? Definitely on everybody involved. So you have a, a young skater um, that, you know, is clearly influenced by those around her. But this young skater has been doing doping control since 13 years old. You're explained every time you go to doping control Um, how it works, that you're responsible for everything that goes into your body. So this is something that she would have been told. But then again, she's being guided by um, a doctor that um, Zvetsky was already part of a doping scandal within the Russian rowing team. Yet he seems to be walking out of this scotch-free and she's taking all the blame. And that's wrong. The ban, the four-year ban for her, uh, how, how do you feel about that decision? The four-year ban will end with time for her to go to the next Winter Olympics if Russia is allowed to compete at the next Winter Olympics. So I don't think that was enough because of the the case taking so long. I think the ban should start now um, because she's been competing for the last few years. She hasn't stopped. She's been competing in Russia are there, allowed to compete at the Olympics. Are there really so, a, enough deterrence, in your view? I mean, we hear these cases come up over and over again in different sports, certainly, specifically with the Russian team. I, I just find it such a tricky situation. Um, you know, I've talked to Russian skaters myself. I've, I've been friends with them. I've asked them questions about these type of things, like, openly. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to know if they they really believe that they're doing nothing wrong and they just don't know what, you know, the adults around them are doing um it's, it's hard to understand especially when you know from to my knowledge sport in canada like we are educated um wada the the world anti-doping organization and the canadian doping organization like they told us not even to take protein powders like we like i was scared to take advil and tylenol it was like oh my god what's in this what's in that um but it doesn't seem like everybody has been educated the same way. And I think that we shouldn't leave that up to Russia to educate the skaters. We should have, you know, an international union that's doing that. Megan, thanks for your time. Take care of that voice. <laughs> Thank you. Have a good day. You too. Megan Duhamel is a retired Olympic figure skater. We reached her in Oakville. Yesterday, an Australian MP was shocked to see herself on a news broadcast dressed in an outfit she's never worn on a body that was not quite hers. When Georgie Purcell actually wore a white sundress, that dress, and I promise this is relevant, fully covered her torso. But when she saw the image on Melbourne's Nine News, the dress had been photographically altered transformed into a skirt and midriff revealing top. And she says her chest had been made to look larger. Now, I can tell you as a media insider that cropping photos is standard practice, but crop topping photos is not because, uh, to speak journalistically, it's creepy and wrong. As Ms. Purcell told The Guardian, quote, the message this sends to young women and girls is that even at the top of your field, your body is always up for grabs, unquote. Nine News quickly apologized, blaming what it called automation by Photoshop. If that sounds made up to you, Adobe, the company that makes Photoshop, agrees, saying hogwash. 
Sorry, I shrank that quote because I wanted it to be smaller. That's okay, isn't it? It's not. Oh, well, then I will mention that Adobe actually said any changes to this image would have required human intervention and approval. So it seems Nine News lied and deliberately shrank Ms. Purcell's clothes, which means Nine News should actually spend some time working on its own image. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, following the world at 6. You can also listen to the show online at cbc.ca slash AIH or on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Neil Kirksal. And I'm Chris Howden. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.